We all need a shot of encouragement to keep us going. A new beginning with Greg Laurie is sure to help in your journey of faith. Hear it twice daily. Details at vision.org.au. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. A special welcome to you, Elizabeth Kendall. Welcome back. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Well, Elizabeth, always like these conversations because there's somewhere between a heart-to-heart conversation uh, and a biblical foundation conversation and also a reflection and commentary on what's going on in global politics. So uh, we do strike a lot of different chords in some of these conversations that we have. So today, uh, don't think uh, it won't be anything different to, to uh, the sort of quality of conversation that we've had in the past. Let's talk, though, as we zero in. And sometimes it's, it's a, a big question as to where do you start to talk about some of the big issues that are going on in the world. Well, let's start with the fact that there is a new president in the United States White House and things have changed in foreign relationships. Your overall impression, Elizabeth Kendall? Well, anyone who's read uh, my second book, After Saturday Comes Sunday, will know that I actually uh, am very strongly in favour of a close cooperative relationship of the West with Russia uh, in Syria and in Mesopotamia and in the Middle East and in, in the, uh, the war against um, assertive Islamic uh, jihad. You know, Russia historically has been, for, for, was for centuries before the uh, Bolsheviks took over in a coup, Russia was the protector of Eastern Christians in the Ottoman Empire. And, uh, you know, Russia has centuries of experience in this whole area of, inter- of engaging with Islam. Russia understands Islam in a way that America and Australia and even Western Europe doesn't. Because for many centuries, Russia shared a border, really, with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so, and, and they regularly had to cross that border and come in and cross the Danube, is what they did, and fight in defense of persecuted Christians and broker better deals for them before they would, uh, before they would go back across the border again. So Russia's got a long history of understanding, uh, about persecution of Christians of, and Islam. And so Russian, Russia understands things in a way uh, that, that the West really doesn't. And uh, we've seen this uh, continuously in Russia's analysis of what would happen if America went into the Middle East in 2003, exactly as they said it came to pass. Russia's analysis of what would happen if America backed the overthrow of of, uh, of, of leaders through the Arab Spring, particularly Syria, uh, and exactly what Russia said has come to pass. And in my book, um, After Saturday Comes Sunday, I've actually included uh, in its entirety the whole section of Putin's speech to the United Nations where he describes the situation in Syria. It's one of the best analyses that you will ever find anywhere. And I believe that Trump, who's actually backed up in this by much of his security apparatus, his new, his new cabinet, they all agree that the best thing that we can do is work in a cooperative way with Russia in the fight against assertive Islam.
What comes to mind, Elizabeth, is a contrast between Barack Obama and Donald Trump and the positions that they've taken. And and I imagine this is not just two leaders, but the entire apparatus of government uh, under both of those leaders, and that is changing. How do you describe a contrast between the Obama approach which was really uh, trying to maintain a tension with Russia and the Putin and the uh, sorry the Trump approach, which uh, really says uh, we need to warm relations with Russia. Well, the Obama approach um, was built on the idea that, uh, like the Muslim Brotherhood, is is synonymous with Islamic democracy, <laughs> and, and a really naive view of Islam. It was built on this whole globalist perspective that, um, that you know, uh, and, and a moral and cultural relativism. All the things that we see of the far left, uh, we see, um, you know, amplified in the Obama administration. And so he, he threw Hosni Mubarak, his ally in Egypt, threw him under the bus, essentially, to back the Muslim Brotherhood. And then when the Muslim, when people rose up against the Muslim Brotherhood, he, he decried that as, you know, like this was, this was against democracy, you know, like, uh, and so there's a, there was huge tension between al-Sisi and Obama, with al-Sisi saying, it's almost ludicrous, you know, here's this Egyptian ruler, an Egyptian military dictator saying, we don't want the Muslim Brotherhood, and you've got the American president saying, we want the Muslim Brotherhood, that's democracy. So it, it was almost a completely bizarre situation, but much of it is all tied up with economics. It's um, tied up with oil and gas pipelines, and money is at the root of everything. You know, the West became, became a, a, a civilization that worships money and chases money a long time ago, and you often find that that's at the root of everything. So you have this warming relationship between Trump and Putin, and uh, not just Trump, but there must be people in the top echelons mm. of government who are also warming a relationship with one another right now. Well, absolutely. I mean, he's, I, from what I've read, and I can't remember their names, and my internet's down, so I can't put them in front of me, but his new, uh, his new you know, security chiefs, his new defence chiefs, uh, the people he, that he has put around him, most of them have a long-term history in intelligence, and they, um, they back him absolutely in this. And I'm just thinking, well, praise the Lord, at, at long last there's some sense, you know, coming into this situation. Um, you know, even back in the Bush administration, which was a Republican administration, they were making ridiculous uh, statements and doing ridiculous things. They were they were investing all their faith in these um, these uh, uh, Shiite politicians that had been expelled from Iraq by Saddam Hussein, and they didn't take into consideration their interests their interests in emboldening Iran. So they actually they actually put in in path they put into play policies that undermined all Western interests. And, and mostly against the advice of their intelligence advisors and their terrorism analysts and advisors. These people had a really rough, rough trot under both the Bush administration and uh, the Obama-Clinton administration. And now they're being brought uh, not just back to the fore, but right into the cabinet. 
And um, these people are all pretty much unanimously, I think, are strongly in favour of a close working relationship with Russia. Uh, Let me take you back to something I was mentioning in our introduction because there are headlines about today and, uh, as I understand it, a Fox News interview is ready to go to air and it's uh, been reported before it goes to air but it's going to air ahead of the Super Bowl uh, in the United States. But uh, Bill O'Reilly from Fox who asks Donald Trump about Putin and uh, about respect for him. He asks, do you respect Putin? And his reply is, I do respect him. And O'Reilly says, why? And his, his response says, well, I respect a lot of people. That doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, that's a good thing. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. Then O'Reilly says, but he's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. And Trump's response is, there are a lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. What do you think? Our country's so innocent. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's uh, what you might assume is an an unusual honesty uh, coming from a world leader and uh, the leader of the free world uh, to say that, uh, you know, the criticisms that people are having of Russia... Uh, we've got just as many skeletons in the closet. Your thoughts, Elizabeth Kendall? I, I agree with him, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, mean, I think everything he said about how, it would, how it's better to have Russia as, as, as a friend and an ally in the fight against terrorism than to be on the wrong side, all these things just make absolute sense. Um, Russia has not shown itself to be an enemy of the West. This is complete a fallacy. The only, the only thing that uh, a lot of Western elites don't like is Russia's competition in marketplaces. We compete with them for markets. See, once again, it's all about money. And a lot on the West don't like Russia's conservative values. Russia is now conservative, while the Western elites are neo-Marxist. So the West's elites are furious with Russia for for becoming conservative for you know for uh, you know for promoting the church as as a moral you know force in the country for for protecting marriage and all this sort of thing so there's a lot of that is underlying it but um you know the fact the fact of the matter is uh we have to be we have to not be naive about what our governments do I mean, Australia has been into, in trouble recently when it's all come out that we had spied, that we had spied on East Timor. Uh, we, had, we had hacked into East Timor's communications during all this time of working out uh, where the border would go through the oil fields. Um, Barack Obama was in trouble with Angela Merkel, uh, either, I think it might have been 2015 or maybe 2014, when it was discovered that American agencies were hacking into her personal mobile phone, so you know we have to accept that this is what spy this is what spy groups do, and it's our government's responsibility to protect us against spy groups. All the while, we're trying to hack in and spy on everybody else. This is just the reality of life. And yes, the West is, is as much involved in um in uh spy work and hacking and has even been involved at times in assassinations and you know to come out and say that that putin is a killer 
that's a pretty a pretty hard thing to say, and it's quite possible that he might not have given uh, direct orders. These might have been the decisions of very high up intelligence officials. So, you know, I think I take it all with a grain of salt, and I realise that we are not as clean as that our government our governments like to portray us. Uh, let me just come back to something you mentioned uh, when you described Russia as conservative mm-hmm. and you describe the US and uh, I suspect under Obama as moving towards neo-Marxism. Mm-hmm. And uh, we might all assume historically that it was the opposite way around. Uh, but that has changed when we're talking about the changing nature of politics and religious focus around the world. Uh, enlarge on that for us a little, Elizabeth. Well, I would personally maintain that we are we are entering or have even entered almost like a reversal of the Cold War, where the West West particularly the left leaning elites in the uh, the politic political and academic and media elites in the West are essentially neo Marxist. Many are complete libertarians. So they're all for same sex marriage, they're all for, you know, a lot of Marxist views, you know, they're keen on the destruction of family, the, the destruction of uh, religion, abolition of religion and family and everything. And uh, whereas Russia, Russia has come out of that. It has uh, emerged. It was taken captive by this ideology and it was a violent captivity. If Russian people had agreed with it, then the streets would not have run with blood the way they did. The communists uh, kept power uh, with through the most brutal means, through killings, through gulags, and, um, oh, there were millions killed, millions killed uh, for their faith and for their uh, refusal to surrender to the communist ideology. And we're, I believe, in a process of almost reversing the situation so that I go to meetings of, um, you know, some uh, government uh, departments here in, in Canberra, and I've sat in meetings where are, you know, um, uh, uh, human rights groups are tearing their hair out with shock and horror because Russia has has enacted a law to prevent, uh, to outlaw the propagation of uh, gender ideology to under 18s. That's that's all the law is. You cannot propagandise and recruit to under 18s if you're a, a gay lobby group the gay the gay night clubs are open uh, everyone's you know free to do what they do but you cannot recruit children and and our government and our departments are tearing their hair out and i remember i put my hand up in the middle of this meeting and i said um why are you so upset with Russia for outlawing the prop, the uh, recruitment of youths and propagandizing amongst youths when countries like Iran hang uh, gay teenagers from their necks from cranes in the street. And in Saudi Arabia, they cut their heads off. And and in the Islamic State, they're pushing them off tall buildings. They are absolutely obsessed with Russia. The obsession with Russia is beyond what I can fully comprehend, to be honest. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall, International Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. We're talking about the relations between the US and Russia and really focusing in on Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. 
You might like to have your say. You might like to extend your thoughts on how you pray for the changing international face of politics and of religion. Well, 1-800-316-316 is our number. Elizabeth, let's take a call from Shelby in Sunnybank in Queensland. Hello, Shelby. Welcome along. Yeah, good morning, Neil, um, Elizabeth. Uh, Neil, I love your, love your show and I love the people that you get on uh, earlier, Lyle, but to Elizabeth especially. I'm no uh, academic and uh, expert like Elizabeth is, but um, in my humble uh, point of view, I agree with everything Elizabeth says, in, even everything she said in the past that I've listened to. But it is just terrific to hear um, Elizabeth um, you know, being able to stand up in Parliament against all these people, the various different stories she was telling us about the uh, uh, Australian government people uh, rising up about the Russian youth uh, law as against the beheading and the so on uh, of homosexuals in other countries. Um, you know, these people just have not got it right. And um, we as Christians certainly need to pray and stand up. And uh, Elizabeth uh, is this one mighty person that is uh, doing this, especially in the politics. Good thoughts uh, in there, Shelby. Let's get a response from Elizabeth. Well, thank you very much for that, Shelby, and for calling in. You know, so many of our Western elites are completely obsessed with Christians and Christianity. Their obsession with Christians and Christianity causes them to have this almost like a blinkered uh, perspective when it comes to Islam and pretty pretty well everything else. And uh, we just have to keep speaking. And the other thing that I find when when I speak, uh, you know, like on the radio or to to church groups or other groups in conferences, is that uh, I do find that for a lot of people, it's like they suddenly, what they've been thinking suddenly makes sense. It's almost like it gives them permission to say, that's what I thought. You know, a lot of people will hear, you know, Putin say something on the news and it's presented on the news as almost like it was something evil. And they hear him say it and they think, well, oh, my goodness, that sort of sounded quite sensible. So to hear someone then put it into perspective and explain why uh, things are the way they are, it's like the penny drops and they say, yes, I thought that's, that's the way it was. So it's, in, it's really important to keep talking because uh, we're fighting against a massive propaganda machine Uh, that can be very difficult for a lot of people to swim against. So the more we talk about these things uh, without fear, uh, the the better off everybody is. So thank you, Shelby. Shelby, thanks so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to be part of our conversation today. Elizabeth, let's move into something else that's big in the headlines and has been over this past week. Of course, it's Donald Trump's so-called Muslim ban. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Muslim ban and the way things have been going backwards and forwards? And, uh, and of course, there's, uh, there's been uh, court challenges to his executive orders. Uh, your thoughts on the Muslim ban coming from the president? Yes, well, it's being uh, routinely called a Muslim ban all over the place, but, of course, it's not really a a Muslim ban. There are still multitudes of Muslims quite who are not subjected to this uh, order. The countries that um, that are on the ban, or the countries where that are listed are Iran, Iraq and Syria, Sudan, Libya, Yemen and Somalia. So these are all countries that uh, have a terrorist that are known for harboring terrorist bases. 
Um, so we don't need to say, oh, this is attacking Muslims. This is attacking Muslim states that are known, or Muslim majority states that are known to have Islamic terror bases well established into them. They are training terrorists, whether it's IS, Islamic State bases like in Mosul and in Raqqa, or whether it's uh, Al Qaeda bases uh, in in uh, Sudan and and in uh, Idlib in Yemen, in Idlib in Syria rather, and Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. You know, these are these are war zones, most of them. Sudan's, oh, Khartoum's not a war zone, but it, it is a war, warring state. And it is one of the leading uh, sponsors of terrorism and does harbour terror training bases. So it's actually a very, very sensible thing. The other thing is this list was drawn up by Barack Obama, by the Obama administration. And it was drawn up uh, to deal with the issue of security and uh, jihadists coming into the country. And people are asking the question, if Obama had, had, had actually gone ahead with this, as he was planning to, would we see all these protests? Would there be people chanting in the streets? And, and, and would there be uh, court cases? Or would it have been accepted that this was you know, about security? And others point out that you know, this is uh, uh, seven countries that are terror, known to harbour terror training bases. What about the 16 countries that actually refuse to allow uh, Israeli passport holders into their countries when, if they're Jews? And this is not because they're terrorists. It's because they're Jews and Israelis. So they can't come in to compete in sporting events. They can't come in with their violins to have musical events. They can't come in for a soccer event. I mean, who talks about this and where are the protests for this? So the whole thing really is completely uh, out of proportion. The, the most unfortunate thing was how it was rolled out so very badly so that um, people, with, people with green cards and visas were, were stuck in airports. That was a terrible mess and should never have happened. But the actual uh, uh, principle of the vetting is not a bad thing at all. And part of the vetting uh, includes the prioritising of the persecuted minorities. And that's something else that a lot of Western elites just can't stomach. Okay. Well, we're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Coming up to news, but let's take a call from Lee in Queensland. Hello, Lee. Welcome along. Hi, Neil and Elizabeth. Uh, Great stuff there, Elizabeth. Uh, I just wondered whether you've also heard a report that big oil reserves have been discovered on the Golan Heights. And if you'd comment, please, on Russia's present uh, relationship with Israel and the possible future events there because of Gog. Okay, now I don't know, I haven't heard anything about oil being discovered on the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights has always been important for security and for water, mostly. It's a really important water source for Israel. Uh, Israel has offered to hand the Golan Heights back to Syria in the past uh, in exchange for peace. It was one of its proposed land for peace deals and Syria refused it. Because so, they refused to sign a peace treaty with Israel. Now, regarding Russia and Israel, Russia is actually very in a very positive relationship with Israel. Now, it has was tense because 
of Russia's support for uh, the Syrian government because Bashar al-Assad's regime, of course, is allied to Iran and to Hezbollah. So Israel saw that as very, very problematic, that Russia was coming in in support of this axis that is very anti-Israel and and, uh, wants to wipe Israel off the map. But Russia has actually forged um, arrangements with Israel where they have agreed that if any weapons, even Russian-supplied weapons, any weapons find themselves into the hands of uh, Hezbollah where they are facing the wrong direction, basically, and uh, looking towards Israel rather than pointing towards uh, Islamic State uh, and al-Qaeda enemies, uh, Russia will not interfere if... Israel bombs those weapons and and looks after its own security. And, in fact, that's exactly what's been happening. Uh, Israel has bombed um, some uh, Hezbollah uh, positions uh, inside Syria, and Russia has remained completely silent on the matter. The other thing is there is oil has been discovered off the coast of Israel, and Russia and Cyprus and possibly now Egypt as well, uh, will all be looking to work together. Elizabeth, I'll need to cut in because we're about to go to news. Thank you so much to Lee in Queensland for your input. 1-800-316-316 if you have a question or a comment, and we'll take some more calls after the news. Elizabeth Kendall, before we take any more calls, and there's uh, some coming through, and thanks for the patience of those who are calling... Let's talk very quickly, and I don't want to minimise our conversation around this, but Donald Trump and his prioritising of persecuted minorities, and oftentimes when that is stated as persecuted minorities, it really means prioritising Christians, something that Barack Obama was clearly careful not to do. Your thoughts on this new prioritising of who might be Uh, helped in the circumstances. Yes, well, this has stirred up a really uh, interesting debate, not just uh, in the media, but like with church leaders as well, and church leaders coming down on on all sides for all sorts of, of different reasons. And of course, we saw the same, a similar thing happening in Australia when uh, Tony Abbott suggested that uh, the minority should be should be prioritised. And of course, while Christian minorities are, you know, in the forefront of this, it also applies to the Yazidis, who have been, uh, you know, subjected to the most appalling uh, sexual slavery and mass slaughter, in a way that the Christians haven't. The Christians were largely driven out, while the, the Yazidis, who are despised as devil worshippers by by the Muslims, uh, they were uh, treated uh, much more appallingly. And it it really relates to persecuted religious minorities quite widely. But, um, you know, it it does trigger a really interesting debate. Um, Open Doors in in the USA, uh, which is... uh, It's under this... Of course, it's the same as Open Doors in Australia, but they are quite uh, independent organisations. And I regard Open Doors in Australia as one of the best organizations for support of persecuted Christians in the world. Uh, Open Doors USA has often got a slightly different slant on things that I'm not, haven't lately been entirely pleased with. 
They're opposed to the uh, preferential treatment, this is in the USA, uh, of, my, of Christian minorities. They say it needs to be needs-based with all faiths treated equally. But I would say that, the, that a needs-based policy would recognise that Christians are in greater need. Um, you know, ISIS does discriminate. ISIS does target Christians. Um, so they are automatically discriminated against right from the very beginning. So we have to recognise this. Uh, and the other thing is we cannot, um, we cannot glamorise persecution and, and say, oh, they need to stay there because, you know, they're so brave and so wonderful. We need to realise that these are Christians who, you know, their, their daughters risk being uh, raped whenever they leave the house because they are now, they have no rights. Uh, they're in a really, really terrible situation. So you've got, you've got, and the other thing that people have been bringing up is the prospect of backlash, that we shouldn't prioritise persecuted Christians because that will trigger a backlash in the Middle East. Now, this is actually something that is a reality. And uh, we see it if we go back even into the 19th century when the British tried to force the Ottoman Empire tried to force the sultan or the caliph, as he was known then, uh, to, to introduce uh, reforms into the Turkish, into the Ottoman Empire. So Britain and France actually, uh, back, they bolstered the regime, the Islamic Ottoman regime, in exchange for these reforms being enacted. But it didn't work out on the ground because the Muslims, led by their clerics, resisted those reforms so violently they decided they'd rather kill all the Christians than give them religious freedom. They'd rather kill all the Christians than have to give them equal rights. And so the, the second part of the 19th century, and I deal with this uh, in my book under the subtitle uh, Islamic Resistance, the, the latter part of the 19th century was just massacre, after massacre after massacre, you have about 1,300 slaughtered in Damascus over a period of a couple of days just because the Sultan said we need to enact reforms. You, in 1875, you have what's known as the Bulgarian horrors. Hundreds of thousands of Bulgarian Christians slaughtered because of the uh, reforms. And then in 1895... You have 250,000 Armenians slaughtered in southern Turkey around Edessa just in a couple of days. This is before the Armenian genocide. This is triggered by the introduction of reforms. So there is a horrible, horrible fact and a reality that sometimes when we say we want to see reforms, what it does is it actually triggers these horrible backlash. So any, I would maintain any effort to introduce reforms must be backed up with security. Now, the other voice, another voice who's been very loud on this has been uh, Nina Shia, who's with the Hudson Institute uh, Centers for, Center for Religious Freedom. She's a, a, a religious freedom advocate of, of long standing, and most people who follow religious freedom issues would know her name. And she says, of course you've got to prioritise these Christians. They're facing genocide. Of course you've got to do it. And she said, uh, she points out that in March of 2016, 
the U.S. government, that's the Obama administration, designated ISIS as a, as a group responsible for genocide in Mesopotamia. And yet they did not enact a single policy to help the victims. Not now, one. Now, Elizabeth, let me bring us back to uh, the primary focus of our conversation today, and that is about Donald Trump, about changing mm. political and religious relations uh, and particularly with Russia and uh, with Putin and reflecting back to an earlier conversation that we've had uh, where you've said that when Russia came into the conflict in Syria, it was so significant that it halted something of a genocide against the Christians. Uh, reflect on the way that the Russians did that and uh, what the U.S. Uh, was doing at the time in in response or as part of uh, the whole uh, situation? Well, the U.S. was uh, backing the Saudis and the Qataris, or, or the Sunni Arabs and Turkey in funding the Islamic jihadists. So uh, they were they were backing the jihad. And what this was doing was setting up a situation where the Christians in Syria were really staring down the barrel of genocide in the same way, in this, the same sort of disaster that has befallen the Christians of Iraq, neighboring Iraq. And the Christians were saying, you know, what's happened in Iraq is going to happen to us. And it really was. In, uh, at the, towards the end of 2015, it was looking very likely that the government of Syria would fall and that um, al-Qaeda would sweep into the Alawite and uh, Christian heartlands and, into, and that ISIS would sweep into Damascus. And it was only the, the, uh, the intervention of Russia, which, had, which then came in in September of 2015, and had been for about six months, I think, training Syrian special forces uh, to use Russian weapons and Russian, uh, uh, Russian uh, war strategies. They were completely trained and they were all released back out onto the field and they managed to turn back the battle. And I would maintain that it was the in intervention of Russia that actually has stalled or prevented a genocide of Christians in Syria, a genocide that would have come to pass on America's watch and with the West's help uh, if Russia had not intervened to prevent the fall of the government. And with that intervention has now come what is essentially a safe haven for religious minorities in all of uh, western Syria. You know, they had a soccer match in Aleppo the other day. You didn't see that on the media, I bet, that they've had their first return to a game of soccer in Aleppo. You know, security is being gradually restored to western Syria, and, uh, and that is the only place that these Christians and these minorities are safe. And what we really need is for these, this safe area to be expanded right across the, the Fertile Crescent. And that's what the West should have been doing in the first place, was preserving the Fertile Crescent as a safe place for minorities. And that's what they failed to do. And hopefully with uh, Russia, if they cooperate with Russia, hopefully something of that will be, will be done. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. 316 Quite a number lined up. So let's uh, see if mm -hmm. we can move through fairly quickly. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. 
Yeah, good day, Neil. Good day, Elizabeth. Yeah, I blame Western church leaders, uh, all the leaders in, in the Western Europe, because uh, the Bible quite clearly says, do first good to the household of faith. And secondly, if Barack, uh, if, um, you know, Barack Obama is a Muslim, we all know that, uh, if Donald Trump was to ban every Muslim, he, he, he wouldn't be wrong in doing it, because, you know, Saudi Arabia bans uh, anyone else who's not a, a Muslim as an infidel. Uh, you can't build a church there, you know, because of your infidel religion. So why don't these lefties go and try them out? Okay, but Chris, also, let's get a response on those points uh, from Elizabeth. Isn't that funny? I've often thought what we need is a, um, we need like a reverse mass migration. We've got everyone thinking this is wonderful that there's a mass migration of Middle Eastern, young Middle Eastern Muslim men into Europe. Why don't we have a mass migration of, uh, of Christians into the Middle East and see how, how well that's taken? It would be, it would be, uh, it would be decried as uh, Western imperialism and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, the, the point is absolutely valid, Chris. You know, even when, uh, when, my, when Muslims were, were fleeing Syria, when Turkey opened the floodgates to allow the Muslims to flee, to move into Europe, Saudi Arabia, which has a tent city uh, that, that houses, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, in like Teflon-coated air-conditioned tents for the Hajj, said no no not one of them will come here so all of them were funneled into europe and saudi arabia and the gulf states did not take any muslim refugees themselves and there's no international outcry from this it's just just completely one-sided and quite bizarre thanks to chris from victoria we'll work our way through some callers uh, solomon is in sydney hello solomon welcome along yeah, g'day, Neil. Thanks for taking my call. It's Solomon here. Uh, thanks, Elizabeth, for your presentation. Thank uh, two you. Two questions with, uh, with observations. Uh, are, are you aware of uh, Putin and uh, Netanyahu uh, uh, ganging up or uh, wanting to support the uh, uh, construction of the Third Temple uh, now that the uh, uh, real Holy of Holies Ark of the Covenant has been found? And secondly, uh, you're aware of uh, uh, Middle Europe, uh, like Albania and so forth, uh, ganging up also to expel Muslims in the last few days. Uh, I'm not really uh, very au fait with a lot of, uh, you know, pro prophetic material. So I'm not, I'm, I haven't read anything about uh, Putin and Netanyahu in the Third Temple. Uh, regarding Middle Europe... I haven't heard that or read anything to suggest they are looking to expel Muslims en masse. I do know that uh, this is one of the great changes in uh, politics in Middle Europe, though, is to uh, prioritise uh, persecuted Christians. And Hungary and I think maybe Bulgaria, but certainly Hungary and some of the other, you know, uh, Christian states of Middle Europe that have only really been able to re, you know, re-establish themselves uh, uh, since the fall of communism. They are very upset with uh, Angela Merkel's policies. They're very resistant now to being uh, having all these Muslim immigrants imposed on them. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they decide they're going to start. Uh, rounding them up and vetting them very, very carefully, because they really never had that opportunity in the first place. It was really a flood 
an absolute flood of migrants. So I wouldn't be surprised if they decide they have to round them up and put them through a more rigorous vetting process. Um, I do know, however, that they are beginning to say, and Hungary has already said, we are not going to take uh, lots of Muslims. We are going to prioritise persecuted Christians. Okay, thank you to Solomon from Sydney. And let's take time for one more call. Graham in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Hello. You know, Scripture is actually telling us, uh, Daniel 11, what's happening in the world and what is actually we're in the process of going to. It says the king of the south, which is going to be the Muslims, they've already got a caliphate there, pushing against the king of the north. And then the king of the north comes upon them goes right into Egypt, right into Israel itself, sets up his uh, palace there, his tidings from the east, from the north. And these are the uh, part. This is, uh, of course, it's going to be China and Russia and Iran and Iraq. And uh, these things are happening now. Our nations have had God's word. We've turned away from God. And this is part of the punishment that's coming up upon our world, upon our people. Donald Trump is trying to do his best to turn it around, uh, but he's got a lot to fight with. Graham, there's great insights in what you're saying. And uh, if I were to ask Elizabeth perhaps to reflect on some of those and uh, and, I, and uh, just to, uh, to reflect on uh, Elizabeth not always uh, commenting on a biblical prophecy, but people talk about a new world order. Elizabeth, new alignments, new issues, globalism, national sovereignty, all of these sorts of things. And uh, as uh, there is speculation about how uh, biblically, uh, prophetically things unfold, we are seeing some major changes that many people who are looking at Scripture uh, will want to actually take into consideration. What are your thoughts, Elizabeth? Well, I've not made it um, a habit of mine or it's not a primary interest of... I am interested, but it's not a primary focus of mine to to look at these things with regards to prophecy. So many prophecies are fulfilled repeatedly. You know, um, uh, the prophecy that Damascus will fall, you know, in from uh, from Isaiah has been, has been fulfilled repeatedly throughout history and um, probably will be fulfilled again at some point, you know. Um, so I tend, I've been tending to just... I tend to just focus on what I know is happening on the ground and, and, um, and how we can address it, particularly with regards to the Church of Jesus Christ. How can we, how can we best uh, look after the Church? You know, God, God... I'm also very aware that God uses some amazing people. You know, God chose Cyrus who did not even know him and did not know he was being used. Um, you know, God has done some amazing things through some amazing and very unwitting people. And I think we just need to keep praying. Uh, we need certainly to pray for revival in the church because the West is in a really disastrous situation. I can, If things continue the way they are going now, I can see the day coming when we'll be just like it was in the early church. You'll have Christians fleeing Europe uh, to find sanctuary maybe in Persia and, and China and to find sanctuary in the East. Um, things are definitely changing, but they're changing all the time. I think they're going to change a lot this year. There's a lot of big things uh, coming up this year, and I think they'll continue to change. I think the world is just becoming more and more fluid. 
Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest. Elizabeth, running out of time, let me just bring you to a point that we often uh, do at the end of a conversation. And we say, how do we pray as Christian believers into what seem to be uh, sometimes impossible situations? Uh, Your thoughts on the sorts of issues that are going on around the world. You even use the words, things are a mess in the church. Uh, How do we pray? Well, I think we can, uh, as we read our scriptures, we get a lot of insight on how we can pray. You know, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? You know, where's the cavalry coming over the hill to save me? No, my help comes from the Lord who makes heaven and earth. The scriptures are full of these exhortations just to keep bringing the situation to God and placing it at his feet, so to speak. And, you know, um, you know, I... We often try to fix things in our minds or work out how we can fix situations, but often we just can't. We can't work out how to fix it. These things are quite beyond us, but we do know what God has called us to do, and God has called us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So we must keep doing that, and there's instructions on my website on how to be an advocate for the persecuted church, and God has called us to give generously, So we must keep giving to mission and being engaged in mission, including to the Middle East and to very hostile places. And we must give to aid because persecuted Christians need clothes on their back. They need skills training. They need a lot of things. And of course, as you said, we need to be praying. And I think churches need to get serious about the serious business of intercessory prayer for too long it's just been a little you know duty on the side you know uh, 30 seconds of prayer no this is serious business in the courts of the lord and god has called us to do it and we have to get serious about it elizabeth always such insightful comment that you make and uh, i'm deeply appreciative of you taking some time to share these thoughts with listeners today Uh, Elizabeth, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. Now, there is a website that I'll point people to. It's elizabethkendall.com. And uh, if you go to that website, as I mentioned, there is a number of dimensions to what Elizabeth does, including her religious uh, liberty uh, uh, prayer bulletins. Elizabeth's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffries Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. And uh, point people too also to the Melbourne School of Theology site to find out some more about how to actually become equipped academically to be able to tackle some of the big issues that are going on in the world today. Uh, Elizabeth's also the Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. And there are two books you could also look for on her website, one called Turn Back the Battle, the other one, her latest book, called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Uh, That website once more is elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.